Hello and welcome to Silence, a podcast that gives women in science, technology, engineering and maths, or STEM, the opportunity to be honest and open about what it's really like working in these typically male-dominated subjects. Each week, one woman shares her stories and experiences. She could be a public figure, the girl next door, or someone from a far-off land. The point is she'll be deliberately kept anonymous and disguised to ensure that we're not distracted by the details of her achievements, her labels, or what she looks like. I'm Dr. Shinny Somara, also a woman in STEM. I studied mechanical engineering and ended up as a TV broadcaster. I've worked on and reported on some cutting-edge technology and innovation over the years. And through my television work, I've met some incredible women from a diverse range of STEM fields. And you know what? I've been more amazed about what I've learned from these women when the cameras have been turned off and they're just being themselves. These women have amazingly impressive CVs, but most importantly, they're human, just like the rest of us. And it's that off-air honesty that I'd love to share with you through silence. It's my hope that you really relate to what's shared with you today and that you're inspired, supported and comforted as I always am when I chat with my amazing guests. If so, please do subscribe to Silence and maybe even leave some comments and reviews. I'd love to have your feedback. This week, my guest is in the field of zoology. Hi, how are you? I'm doing very well. How's it going? Good. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Bye. I'm so excited to hear about your STEM journey because uh, as a mechanical engineer, I think it's really amazing that you get to do biomechanics. Um, so how did you get into that? Um, so I've actually got a biological background, which actually I would say has quite a 50-50 gender balance. But then the field I moved into is more of a crossover of engineering and biology so it's studying the biomechanics of organisms um, and applying engineering principles to biological systems and so we get a lot of um, we get a mixture of disciplines in our group with biologists and engineers Mm. yeah I love that cross-pollination of subjects uh, because you discover so much when you've got different people with different expertise coming together and just talking yeah so were you the type of kid that knew she was going to go into something like this um I'd I'd say so so I knew I was I would describe myself as quite a tomboy as a kid um I used to get bullied quite a lot at school so I very much just did my own thing and I wouldn't say that I was lonely, but I did very much just do what I wanted. So I knew that I loved animals and I discovered that I really enjoyed mathematics. I did lots of maths Olympiads as a kid and got involved with lots of science clubs and always knew that I would probably be doing something with science or animals um, or preferably something that actually mixed the two. So it was quite serendipitous right. that... I discovered the field of biomechanics and that I could end up mixing both of those loves together. Mm. So as a child, I'm just picturing a mini you. Um, Was it a case of kind of you were turning to your genuine interests to kind of escape what was going on? I remember always being very fascinated with animals and in particular insects. I remember in kindergarten, I would always be looking at the ants and the earthworms and snails and woodlice that were in the kindergarten playground. Um, I remember, you know, teachers would always comment on the fact, you know, ah, 
she's always looking at bugs and insects and animals in her spare time. And there's sometimes expressed concern that I wasn't maybe spending as much time um, with other people. Um, so I grew up, my parents are from a different country to the one I grew up in. And I think there was a certain element of people not liking foreign people when I grew up. And I was always somewhat the outsider. So I always felt a little bit distanced from other people whilst growing up. I wouldn't say that's the case anymore, though. I mean, it's quite unusual for a girl to be into creepy crawlies, essentially. (laughs) Um, Is that one of the things that kind of kept you a little bit different? Um, I do think I got the label of being a bit of a weirdo whilst growing up. And especially where I grew up, I felt that was a very gendered thing. People often associated liking bugs with being a very male thing. It was very odd for a girl to like maths or to like science or to like bugs. And then on top of that, I had very short hair. I didn't have pierced ears. Um, I was very much a tomboy and looked like a boy. I would often be confused for being a little boy until about the age of 13, 14. Um, And I could tell that people didn't like that or they felt I should be fitting into some different mould, but also because I didn't really fit in with the people from my class or from Mm. my school. Um, I don't know. I didn't feel the pressure to fit in, which ironically gave me the freedom to just do my own thing, because people didn't like me anyway, so I might as well be disliked and do what I wanted than be disliked and not be myself. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it's amazing that you kind of only had that option, um, because it kept you in STEM, essentially. It kept you uh, pursuing your passions. Yeah, I I mean, ironically, so even though I didn't mesh well for a very long time with the peers in my classroom I think people did realize that that was you know they they put me in that box of being the brainy kid who likes science so even though I wasn't particularly popular people still always perceived me as intelligent or being sciencey so did encourage that from me and I did actually find that both my parents and my teachers were very happy to support me fulfilling an academic role or remaining in science. And this was actually something that I saw as being quite different to what I saw happening with other people. Um, Because there's this idea that, you know, girls are deterred from science or maybe men, boys are more actively encouraged to go into engineering jobs or, you know, jobs that are considered high paying And I remember a lot of my male friends, their parents would push them to either apply for law at university or medicine um, or or physics and engineering, which are, you know, in the country I grew up in, perceived as the the high-paying subjects. Whereas a lot of the girls in my classroom didn't have such a push from the parents. So they had more freedom to choose what they wanted, but I don't think that they're ambitions were as well supported and I often wondered if maybe that led now when I look back I wonder if that leads to the slightly you know gendered expectations and some of the splits that you see because I saw a lot of 
of my male friends applying for things that they didn't want to do, but they, that they were pressured into doing. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's interesting to hear that there was pressure on the boys to do those typically male-dominated subjects. Yeah, but also maybe even a discouragement of the women from doing things that were considered male-dominated or the ambition wasn't encouraged from them. And I feel I was the exception to that. People were very invested in me performing well academically. So I feel like I had the freedom to do what I wanted. But ironically, I felt that was because people perceived me as either being more masculine or they sort of put me more into a gendered boy box because I was a tomboy. Right. And people just assumed I was an oddball. So I still... Maybe it was also because you were good at those subjects. I think there was an element of that, but there were lots of other people who were very good at these subjects and they did receive the support from the from the school in pursuing them. But I did feel that the push with me was maybe quite different. Um, at the same time, I don't know, maybe I'm just viewing my experiences as quite different, but I did see with a lot of my friends that ambition for certain subjects was highly instilled into my male friends, but not so much into my female friends, which meant that my female friends who maybe wanted to do things that were quite different, they were supported in that. But if they did want to do something that was more male dominated, they wouldn't receive the level of support that I think they should have received to be able to do that more confidently. Mm. So, you know, great news for your interests. Like you were given the support and encouragement you needed to uh, pursue those kinds of subjects that would lead you to biomechanics and zoology. Um, so what was the journey that you took to get to where you are today? Um, so I skipped a grade at school. So I actually started university a year younger than most people. Um, and I applied to one of the top universities in the UK and was offered a place there. Um, and I found that the the change in pace from where I grew up to moving to the UK, which is comparatively more individual focused, people a lot more respectful and encouraging of personal ambitions, even if a bit more detached from it. So I felt like I was finally able to flourish a bit more at university. I didn't, I finally discovered that, you know, the notion I grew up with of being too good at something or being too interested in learning or wanting to do well academically um, was no longer viewed in a negative light. It was actually something that was encouraged and people were encouraged to pursue what they enjoyed doing. Mm, regardless of gender, right? Exactly. I mean, I'm sure there are still gendered aspects. Um, I did feel growing up, I don't know, I feel that the topic of gender is quite an interesting one because growing up, I never really felt particularly identified. I never felt like I identified as a woman. Um, I wouldn't, I would actually say I do now, but I never felt like I was perceived as very feminine mm. growing up. Um, I didn't, you know, I, I had no notion of, you know, different pronouns or non-binary identities, but I always described myself, I feel more like a hermaphrodite because 
I felt like I presented as a woman but behaved more like a man even though it's sort of silly that we should expect people to behave one mm. way or another just based on their physical appearance um, whereas I think moving to the UK there was a lot more freedom to behave outside of these traditional roles that people expected from you and so I was actually much more comfortable with identifying as female or feminine whilst also not necessarily conforming to all of these expectations that I felt I had grown up with but didn't conform to anyway. So it sounds like the freedom to um, be yourself allowed you to actually choose what you wanted to be. Yes. Ironically, already growing up as not fitting in, even though I think it's made me very insecure in some aspects, I also think really made me comfortable with just going for what I enjoyed doing because I was aware that people are going to disapprove either way. So I might as well make the choices that I feel are better for myself. Which is kind of incredibly liberating because a lot of people are a prisoner to the roles they should be playing. Whereas it sounds like you were so um, unsupported that you developed the strength to actually establish um, your true self. Yes, and and it's odd how that happens because, um, so that, that was the other thing. When I moved to the UK, um, there were lots of conversations around gender and around sexism. And I'll admit that at the beginning, I was very skeptical about it because I come from somewhere where there is a lot more overt sexism than in the UK. You know, being catcalled on the street is normal. People expect women to have long hair, pierced ears, to dress pretty and, you know, to fulfil a certain role, whereas the men are the one who are supposed to earn a lot of money um, and hold that masculine, you know, that masculine personality. So then moving to the UK, at first, I was quite taken aback by all these conversations because I was thinking, you don't have this problem in the UK. This is a lot worse where I've come from. But then I also realised it's probably because people are having these conversations and reflecting on it that they don't have these problems anymore. And it also made me reflect on actually, in some ways, the experience I've had growing up does intersect very well with that, even though it's perhaps not the traditional way that sexism shapes people's choices or people's lives. So in my case, I was already a bit of a social outcast growing up. So I had the freedom to pursue whatever I wanted, regardless of that. But it came at the cost of not fitting in very well with my peers. Whereas I guess for a lot of other people, what happens is in order to fit in, they forego what they would much rather be doing or they don't receive that support. So, I mean, overall, the posit- it's positive, the experience of not fitting in. I would, I would say yes, because I would definitely want to view that um, as a positive thing. I mean, it's, you know, had impacts in other ways, such as feeling very insecure amongst certain groups. So I become very aware when people do have preconceived ideas of what boxes people should fit in. Because, 
you know, nowadays I find that people are surprised to learn that I've done a PhD or that I've been in a field that involves engineering. So there's still clearly those judgments present. It's almost like people don't expect me to have achieved a lot academically or to be intelligent or to be things that clearly they personally haven't associated with women. And I'm a lot more sensitive to that now than I would have been a few years ago. Well, it sounds like your sensitivities and your differences to mainstream was exactly what propelled you through academia. And it's kind of interesting to maybe imagine that it wasn't easy, but it's exactly the fuel you needed to 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 achieve. Yeah, um, I was so I was having a, a chat with someone from my group the other day because um, we were we were just talking a bit about group dynamics. Um, I remember when I first started my research in this group. Um, you know, I was quite impressed that there was a very decent gender balance, considering that there's a strong engineering component in the group. Although I would say there were more women at the, you know, undergrad, PhD, postdoc level. No women at the, you know, fellow professor level. But it did feel like there was a decent gender balance. But actually, as time has gone on, I have started to notice certain things about the group that we're in where I think gender has had an impact without people necessarily noticing. Um, Sort of like... So in what ways? um, So for instance, I have noticed... We have noticed that Um, a man's opinion might be more likely to go unquestioned. Yeah. And a lot of the women in the group tend to second-guess themselves a lot more, myself included. Um, So even though everyone experiences imposter syndrome as they enter academia, I feel it's a lot stronger in the women. And also, even though we might be a lot more likely to be open about it or more comfortable with expressing not knowing much about certain areas. Um, I have come to notice that whilst the men will keep up a facade and pretend to know more than they do because they don't want to let on that they don't grasp a concept, when a woman does ask about it with one of our supervisors, I think it comes as being perceived as a weakness or that we're not working as hard as we should be. Even though we are, we're all working equally hard or perhaps even harder. It's almost like the admission of not knowing, um, the, the superficial perception that they get of what we let on seems to mark our reputation more. And this was something that we were discussing the other day because I would say we were all equally capable, but because we were more happy to let on about not understanding something, which is the right thing to do, because then you can catch problems early. Um, This was perceived by our male supervisor as perhaps being a source of concern. And this also made me wonder if there were some 
unconscious biases in the group that might be affecting our supervisor's perception of us. Yeah, I mean, that's just so fascinating because um, asking questions and being curious and wanting to know more is such a quality. You know, it's it's such a positive thing. And um, it is fascinating to kind of assume that everyone in the group, male or female, are just as capable as each other. But it's almost like a cultural trend to pretend or to give off the illusion that you've understood and you know and and it's kind of an a discouragement of a quality that is um advantageous you know asking questions wanting to inquire more is a great thing yeah and this was another thing I was talking about with my friend she felt that the men in the group had a lot more freedom to be curious and do their own thing, whereas the women felt they had a greater pressure to be perfect at what they were doing, so they were less likely to explore. And, you know, she said something that she perceived me as being one of the female role models in the group, which I wasn't expecting at all, um, because, again, I felt like I've gone through my PhD feeling very self-conscious about how much I don't know about engineering or certain aspects Mm. of my research. Um, And I felt my way of coping with that was perhaps being a bit more isolated, but very much just buckling Mm. down and doing my own thing. But I also wonder whether that's given a different image or facade that I have just, you know, ignored what everyone else thinks about me and just done my own thing. And in some way that apparently has been inspiring. So it made me wonder a lot more about the perceptions we all seem to have of yeah. each other in the group and how much that is influencing what we all think about each other and our perceived expertise. Because then another thing that has always mildly annoyed me in the group, um, we have a female postdoc and some male postdocs. Um, And I'd say they all do great work. They all cover different areas. Um, But whilst I've never heard any of the male postdoc work be criticised, I have sometimes heard the performance of the female postdocs work be criticised in ways that I've never heard about the men. And... I've seen her work sort of before hearing these criticisms and I know it's very good work, but I wonder if I'd heard it the other way around, if that would have changed my opinion about one of the members in the group just due to these offhand comments that are made about some people, but not others, and how much of that is gendered as well. Gosh, I have so many questions um, because what you raise is very layered and deeply complex. Um, First of all, why do you think there are less women at fellow and professor level? So, I I mean, there's the the whole leaky pipeline concept. Um, And I guess to some degree, if we go back to, you know, the gender expectations, I guess at the age where you start to become 
fellow and professor. It's probably the age where most people are looking to have a family and usually the woman is expected to take on a greater load than the man. So they might be put off by, you know, increasing working hours or increased responsibilities that may be less flexible. I mean, academia can be quite flexible, but there's also an expectation that you'll be putting in a lot of hours, you'll be available all the time. And I wonder if that's off-putting to quite a lot of women who might want to continue academia. And also maybe off-putting to men who just feel that they can give more time and focus. Exactly. But the other thing I wonder is if it's down to imposter syndrome, because I'm I'm probably going to leave academia. I don't discard coming back in the future, but I know I want to break from it. And although I think everyone experiences imposter syndrome, I think because of how we're brought up, we're much more likely to be sensitive of what others think, and we're much more likely to second guess the quality of our work. And if you have less confidence in yourself and you perceive this job as being one where you have to be ultra competent and know everything about a field, then you might be less likely to bother applying and and going for it. And that's without counting the fact that, you know, men might be perceived as being more competent by interviewers due to potential cognitive biases during the interview process as well. So I wonder if all of those together are probably factors that influence that. Um, And also, to a degree, I'd say a lack of Mm. role models. Um, I would say in the field of zoology, the gender balance is getting better and better compared to other science departments at my university. Um, And actually, you know, seeing young fellows who are women or who are starting their own lab has actually been quite inspiring for me. And it's actually what's made me gone from definitely going to leave academia to might consider returning in the future if I feel up to it. So I think as well as the element of not having role models, because if you don't see someone who's like you doing what you would like to be doing, then you don't associate it with something that a person like you would do and that can create a feedback loop Mm. in itself but I would have thought you out of you know lots of women in your field is more immune to that than most because it sounds like there was no one like you growing up with your interests necessarily but you fought through it um I would I would say that's actually totally the case i Growing up, I didn't know if I wanted to be an academic per se. I just knew I wanted to work in the field of science or maybe communicating science or in some way making it accessible to others, but not necessarily from a research perspective. And I do feel like the career choice I'm taking would still fulfil that vision I had for myself. But I do admit that now that I'm a bit more sensitive to this, I do quite often notice, you know, when there is a a lack, you know, a lack of women or a lack of people of colour yeah. holding certain positions. Um, so I had a brief time where I was working in the mathematics department where there were very few women and the contrast 
with the zoology department and other departments was very, very obvious to me. Yeah, I mean, I find you so interesting because you seem to have got to where you have got academically based on pure talent for the subjects. But it sounds as though what's really been an obstacle in your path has been your own levels of self-belief. Yeah. What kind of battles have you faced in that regard? Um, so I would definitely say that self-confidence has probably been a major one. So obviously growing up and not... I was never really the popular person in the school. Um, I was bullied quite a lot. <laughs> I think I was actually probably bullied every year I was at school. So it really made me second guess everything I did and worry a lot about how others perceived me and whether what I was doing was good enough for others to like me. And I think that's probably had some degree of influence. I think the other thing that hits a lot of people in academia um, is perfectionism because the kind of, well, I don't want to generalize, but I do feel the kind of person who ends up going on to do a PhD is the kind of person who's quite driven. They want to, they want to do something big or they want to make a contribution that's meaningful. And as I'm sure a lot of people who do science know, quite often science is about trying and failing at doing a lot of things and learning how to be okay with all that failure or, you know, lack of success in what we originally framed as success in science. Which can be crazy making. Yeah. And that is, I think, what generates the imposter syndrome because you realise that the additional knowledge you're creating is a lot smaller than what you started out as. So people can often feel that the work they're doing isn't meaningful, even though it is because negative results are just as important as the positive ones. They're just not as well rewarded in the academic framework, which in itself is a whole other conversation that people should be having. Um, but also it can you know, reduce your own confidence in your work because all you see are the success stories and you compare yourself to them, but you might not see all of the failure that's behind that success. Um, I think that was something I found myself struggling with a lot during my PhD. I always felt I was further, <clears throat> I was further behind what I expected from my own high standards, which made yeah. me feel like I wasn't yeah. very good at what I was doing. Even though in practice, now that I'm, you know, towards the end and talking to other people, I realized that everyone else has the same problems. Other people procrastinate, other people worry about whether the work they're doing is meaningful or not. Everyone has had failed experiments, but obviously what they post on social media, what they tell others when you ask in passing how they're doing is you know the paper they published or the successful thing that they did achieve, but without talking about all the other things that didn't go as well. I mean, I, I totally agree with you in the sense that um, PhD students often set a really high expectation of themselves, and that often leads to so much conflict. Um, and, and it's, 
I think most people don't understand why women who achieve so highly in academia can often be the women with the least confidence. Um, but it is because of this internalized high expectation of themselves. Because when I listen to you, your academic achievements are clearly impressive. I mean, to be a year ahead of everyone else, to get into the institution that you got into, it's all, there's no doubt that you are a leader academically. Um, but, you know, when you talk about someone calling you a role model, it's almost like you don't believe that you could be. And I just find that so interesting yeah. because I, it sounds, I'm convinced that you're a role model. Um, but isn't it so fascinating how we ourselves are blinded to that because of our own internal conflicts? It, it is, and it's interesting because I guess maybe we have our own idealised role model of what we should mm. be. And we know we don't measure up to this idealised version that we have of ourselves. But then when you look at any of your amazing friends who have also achieved lots of things and probably have the same concerns about not achieving as much as they wanted, um, those expectations disappear and we see them for who they are. Amazing people who are achieving plenty of things. So it's also interesting how we perceive ourselves very differently to yeah. how we perceive others. Because um, an another thing that happened on a few occasions in the final year of my PhD was I won, I won a prize for like have doing giving a good talk at a conference or you know presenting good research and lots of people came to compliment what I had spoken about and you know for a very long time I was very surprised by this because I was acutely aware yeah. of how much was left to what I was doing. I felt the work done was very descriptive as opposed to as quantitative as I wanted it to be. And I was very self-conscious about all the aspects of the work I didn't understand and therefore hadn't analysed in a specific way that I wasn't actually... I was looking at what was left to go, so I wasn't appreciating perhaps the goodness of what I had do what what I had done and I found it very hard to internalize that praise as success or you know somehow it was incompatible exactly almost rejecting it and so looking back you know this this still strikes a chord with me because it always it always surprised me how is my perception of myself so different to the perception of others and does this mean am i in the wrong or am i just fooling everyone which again ties back into the imposter syndrome and you know i guess nothing is ever perfectly black or white yeah because i don't think it's right or wrong um i think it's just kind of from where i'm standing it sounds sad that someone can be so brilliant and not recognize recognize it in themselves um, and, and it's, it's, it's kind of inspiring to me to hear you talk about yourself, um, almost in a harsh light, because I don't think you would ever, um, see a friend 
the same way you see yourself. I think if you had a friend who was like you, you would just think they're absolutely amazing. Yeah, and I guess I get a lot of friends who say very lovely things about me or, you know, they say, you know, you're doing a PhD and you also do all these other things and manage to do them all, whereas I guess my perception is, oof, I've got no time. I'm not doing enough, yeah. I'm doing all of these you're probably jobs and doing them all, you know, yeah. zero of all of them. So it's, but then if I saw someone else doing that, I would probably view them in the same way. they were Wonder Woman. <laughs> exactly. But it's, it's, what's most fascinating to me about that is that um, we really have a choice um, about our attitude because no one can make you see your achievements and accomplishments and no one can pat you on the back. Um, I mean, I'm sure many people do, but no one can genuinely affect you with a pat on the back the way you could allow yourself to be affected positively. Yeah. So I did end up going to um, therapy counselling for part of my PhD, um, partly for other things, but one of the big things we spoke about quite often was um, academic perfectionism and how to counterbalance it a bit or identifying certain thought patterns or behaviours that were probably contributing to me feeling worse about the work I was producing and therefore ironically making me do worse work because I was afraid of sending it to get feedback out of fear that I would get bad feedback and let people down but in doing so delaying the useful feedback I could receive to make it better which is what I should be doing as a PhD student because I shouldn't expect my work to be perfect. Um, so I did find that quite helpful. I don't know if this, I imagine this is probably something that everyone doing a PhD would probably experience to a degree. Yeah. I mean, I definitely could have um, got a lot of use out of uh, talking to someone when I was doing my doctorate because I was really in the thick of isolation, uh, mm. perfectionism, and uh, I guess, you know, being in a minority in engineering. And all of those yeah. things made me really spiral down into a place where I just felt like I wasn't enough. Um, I was constantly focusing on where I lacked rather than the abundance of what I was doing, you know, to be studying at such a, to be researching at such a high level, uh, to be achieving in such a male-dominated field. I mean, I never thought once about those things. And it does remind me of that saying, you know, don't compare your insides with other people's outsides, yeah. um, which I constantly did throughout my doctorate. I was always, I just, I never felt good enough. Um, and so I definitely, you know, I, I, I think it's fantastic that you were able to speak to someone about your thought patterns and behaviors, because when you're isolated and you tend to be when you're doing a PhD, yeah. um, you don't even realize you're doing it. <laughs> it's always hindsight is 2020, mm. um, 
because when things were terrible during my PhD, so I also had some mental health troubles towards the beginning. You know, I, I had some extra time given as a result. And at the time I felt, you know, oh, you know, am I just being given this as an advantage? Maybe I don't deserve this extra time. And now that I'm doing so much better, I can actually see how badly I was doing at the time. And that, yes, that help I received at the time was completely necessary, even though at the time I doubted it, but, you know, still had to take it. So again, it's amazing how the perspective of your own situation can change. And it's almost like you sadly need to go through it and have that experience to realise it. And, you know, even though they always tell you that you'll struggle with these things as a PhD student, um, I just wish I had still known it better or, you know, caught the signs at the time so as not to be quite as harsh on myself until the very end. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we're pushing ourselves so hard academically and, you know, we're really pushing our brains to its limits that we often leave our emotions and our mental kind of stability by the wayside because it's almost like a hindrance to take a look at it. Um, But it does tend to catch up with you. Um, You know, it sounds like it caught up with you uh, at the beginning or early on in your PhD, but for some people it might catch up with you like well into their careers past their PhD. But I think it does catch up is the point. It does. And I don't know, I guess it just, you know, it leaves these things that need to be dealt with sooner or later. So I yeah. guess maybe the the good thing about having this excessive awareness of what I'm thinking or doubting about at least meant that I was able to catch these unhealthy work, thought patterns. And mm. whilst I can't say I've completely fixed them, I would say that I'm on the path to You're on the path, yeah. what to do about them rather than having them, you know, resurface again in the future and having them catch me off guard. Yeah, because I think self-awareness is incredibly important. Um, you know, the ability to self-reflect I think it gives us a higher level of consciousness um and I I'm very grateful to my PhD for kind of thrusting me into this um really extreme mental state because I think it was through that hardship of studying something at such a high level that I was kind of it was a catalyst to wanting to become more self-aware in order to get out of that suffering, really. Yes, and to a degree, I also, I often feel that's quite an undervalued skill or one that's not thought about very often, Mm. because whilst I think sometimes, you know, it can be passed off dismissively as, I don't know, being hysterical or being overly emotional and letting it getting letting it get in yeah. the way with your work or you know softer variations of an of you know people who think that and they associate it as oh you know women aren't as good at science because they worry about these yeah. things and that makes them weaker which is totally not true um you know i often think 
uh, I don't have a female PI myself. I did have one very briefly, but other people who do, I feel they're a lot more sensitive to the struggles that their female PhD student, but also male PhD students might have throughout and might actually be able to support them, you know, avoiding them from falling into bad mental health patterns, which in the long run would actually probably make them do better work whilst keeping a healthy work-life balance rather than just encouraging brute forcing all your hours into PhD and neglecting other important aspects of life. I think that's the the one of the goals of silence is really to just talk about it because sometimes it's not about fixing the problem it's really just about transparency and openness that these issues exist uh, because you know we are living in that sort of Facebook culture where we're always presenting our best selves but I don't think that necessarily gets us anywhere because it's just not realistic life is very much about balance and I think PhDs and reaching that kind of level means that uh, whilst you're achieving massively on an academic scale you do have to counterbalance that with um, emotional and mental self-care. Exactly and that also ties in with a few other things I've noticed you know about some of the research groups that I'm in that were well, they're led by male PIs. Don't know if it's specific or if it's just part of the culture. But another thing we noticed, or that we've occasionally discussed as a group, um, we noticed that when we have visitors of any kind, there's always the pressure to try and put on a good image and to maybe not discuss bits of research that are in progress that we could do with having feedback on out of fear that it will make you know the group seem disorganised or paint it in a negative light for not having absolutely everything together. And again, I guess I found the wanting to find feedback often comes from the female PhD students and the female postdocs who are interested in gathering different perspectives, whereas the male... PIs want to have just a purely presenting the best of everything that we're doing. And I, you know, I guess there's place for both of them, but observing that contrast as well also made me wonder um, whether there were maybe things we could be doing better in the group and whether maybe some of the problems that the group is experiencing could be due to that lack of comfort with things not going well and therefore they don't get discussed and therefore you know a problem with an experiment or a problem with a line of argument just takes a lot longer to be fixed as a result of a lack of communication yeah yeah I mean that's where I feel like women are going to struggle to not dominate but to have a fair place within STEM or, or beyond STEM, is that if our most significant qualities are actually viewed as shortcomings or defects, we're never going to have a chance. Uh, because when I talk to other women in STEM as a result of doing this podcast, it's clear that women are more emotional. And right now that's seen as negative, but I 
truly believe in subjects, particularly like engineering or architecture, having emotions is a really great thing because it, it just makes it just makes things more um i don't know more empathetically considered or something i i don't know it's just it just seems so ironic to me that the one thing that women really do bring to the table which is kind of an emotional awareness and intelligence is seen to be something negative when actually if supported and nurtured could be an extremely useful and positive thing for the world. Exactly. And one of the biggest ironies is that in politics, being able to appeal or manipulate emotions, that is valued immensely, whether it's done well or badly. So emotional awareness is very important, but somehow the people making the decisions aren't emotionally aware of it. Do you think that's something that could change within your field? I would like to think that it could. Um, I do actually think that things are changing because I would, I guess from my description of when I moved to the UK, I did notice a shift in how people were thinking about things and how they were tackling sexism. And the country where I came from, I would say perhaps with a five-year delay, but they're having those conversations now. And I think there's also a bit of a societal shift in how we perceive or think about women in the workplace. So I, mm. I would say that things are changing and I think that people are starting to value or see things differently. But obviously change takes a very long time to come along. And at the same time, I would also say science is ironically quite a slow moving field. It takes a long time yeah. to finish a PhD, to finish a project. So the delay will probably feel quite long. Um, but I do think, I am very optimistic, and I do think that it will be changing for the better. Mm. Well, we definitely need more women like you who have has the tenacity to push through being different. Because uh, I, I think this is probably the root of why someone um, called you a role model, is because even if you felt very isolated, uh, the very nature of pushing through that isolation and sticking to what you are interested in is exactly the kind of role model we need, you know? Mm. Oh. <laughs> Why do you think women are becoming more powerful within STEM and other industries? Why now? So I guess now that we're allowed to study at university and, um, you know, obviously women have been allowed to study at university for quite a few decades now, but it didn't always start out that way. Um, and I feel that slowly it's caught up with the fact that it's not the woman who has to stay at home to be a housewife and for the man to have to earn all the money and I think now we're getting generations where both parents are working and so children are growing up in an environment where they can see both parents as role models for people who can pursue pursue their career 
ambitions. So I think there's an element of that, of having role models or people who have already done the path that perhaps you're hoping to follow to some degree. I think there's also an increased awareness. Um, I imagine, you know, the women who have been through this have probably suffered the greatest brunt of people not wanting women in the workplace. They've changed. Undervalued, and they've been able to find their voice to say, well, actually, um, this is sexist and we do bring a lot to the table. And I think that's what started the conversation, um, like the one we're having. Do you have the confidence to speak out now? Um, I'd say yes and no. I feel, so I always feel like I'm a very shy person and I'm often described as being very diplomatic. It's almost like I prefer to take a very quiet standpoint to put forth my opinion. I know some people, you know, they don't like being told you're a man, so you're automatically sexist, even though this all comes down to everyone having unconscious biases that they've grown up with. So I feel like I usually have a a very soft approach, which, I don't know, I I hope works. I admit that because of how I grew up with being bullied and not being well liked, I'm not afraid to say what I think, but I'm very self-conscious about how I put forth mm. opinion because I don't want it to create conflict either. So I don't know how good I am in these... How effective, you mean? Conversations, or maybe my strategy is different to other people's. It's also something I've wondered about, but I also have found myself in a position where I'm a lot more confident about speaking up or perhaps mentioning that I've noticed certain patterns of behaviour if I do think they could be coming down to a perceptual bias rather than one that's actually there. I mean, I think it's important for someone like you to speak up because um, I think one of the disadvantages about being an outspoken woman um, is not having the academic authority or experience to actually back up what they're saying. But you definitely have that. And so really, knowing that you have that academic authority is important. Like You need to know that more than anyone else in order yeah. to have the confidence to speak up. Yes, Um I know I have contributed to articles that do talk about um, sexism in science in the country that I came from, and specifically as someone who is pointing to actual research studies that showed that these phenomena were the case and not just people saying things for the sake of saying them. And again, I guess that comes down to quite often people want to maintain a status quo or maybe don't want to be aware that there is a problem there when other people 
are. So I think in, in that degree, being able to have the academic authority to point to those resources or understand the rigorosity of a scientific study and put it into context has been quite valuable. So what does having it all mean to you? That's a very interesting question. Um, I, I guess I finished my PhD recently and so that felt like, you know, the pinnacle of achieving yeah. the things I wanted to achieve. Congratulations, by the way. What a load <laughs> off your shoulders. Uh, it really is, even though the first thing I did was just get ill and you passed out for a week. Yeah, same. Um, I think now post-PhD, um, I think one of my biggest priorities is actually not to let myself slip into such a terrible work-life balance as I had within my PhD. So actually appreciating staying in contact with people I care about, doing things that make me feel happy and ensuring that the work I do feels meaningful or that fills me with purpose. Preferably work I enjoy, but sometimes you have to do things that you don't enjoy, but that you know are are important. So I think it's gone a lot more from perhaps goal-oriented to more value setting Mm. and trying to ensure that I'm maintaining that over time. That being said, this is a totally new journey I'm about to go on. So I hopefully will be able to have it all in that way, but I don't know what that will look like specifically yet, but I am excited to see how it will pan out and to discover what that looks like for me. Yeah, because I guess you are very much at the beginning of a brand new chapter. Um, Yeah. So in terms of, you know, often I ask about having it all to my female guests because, you know, we can be career women, we can be mothers, we can be partners and friends. And I just wonder, you know, do you have set aspirations for having a family or is it just too soon to even ask that, you know? Um, I know I would like a family one day. Um, I'm in no hurry (laughs) to have one yet. I feel I want to grow as a person. Um, I guess that I've come to realise, you know, there's lots of small things like the perfectionism and other aspects of mental health that I want to be able to work Mm. on. Um, I want to have new experiences and grow in specific ways so I know I'll probably be working towards achieving or fulfilling those wants and I also know that staying in contact with family and with friends and not letting those go down the wayside during periods of lots of work is not something that sits well with me especially during the time that I was finishing the PhD so I think I'm also going to be a lot more conscious about how I manage my time the things I say yes to and no to Um, I'm going to be going into freelance so there's a bit like academia there's a lot of managing Mm. my own time but this time I'm my own Mm. boss Um, and I'm actually quite looking forward to being a leader for myself in that time whereas I think before I saw myself as being a bit more of a follower and discovered that actually I would quite like to be in control and lead the decisions that I make 
about my life um, a lot more. You know, you really remind me of that time when I submitted and finished my doctorate because the whole world was open to me. And uh, I really hear you when you talk about sort of wanting to focus on your mental health and emotional well-being, because um, for me anyway, doing a doctorate was really about just developing my brain, exercising my mind and really pushing it to its limits. And uh, when I submitted, it was really about me time and really just kind of, you know, doing things that were much more from the heart rather than the head. Yeah. So I hear you. And I don't know if you've experienced this at all or not, but I do know that growing up, I often felt there was an expectation for me to do well. And it's almost like these academic successes are like outward markers that others expect from you. And in some way, I'm actually glad to be done with all of that and finally focus on the things that I know I value and realise that I can separate myself from everything everyone else expects from me and to just do what will make me happy. Because in the long run, that will probably make me more successful because I'm actually happy doing what I'm doing. Uh, I, I totally understand what you mean. I, I felt exactly the same way. Um, you know, I, I was interested. I was interested in the subject. You know, obviously, I was capable of doing mechanical engineering. But once I had finished, I really wanted to discover um, different aspects of me that, you know, maybe my parents or friends or just didn't know existed. It was it was a journey of self discovery for me once I finished academia. Um, and I'm so happy for you that you want to follow that path because, um, it's, it's, it's so valuable to us as individuals to be on that kind of journey. Uh, but it's not something that anyone can comment on. It really has to be self-led. And if your journey is anything like mine, you will discover things about yourself that you never knew existed. And, uh, it's kind of like opening a can of worms because not many people do face themselves, truly face themselves. Um, mm-hmm. You know, often when we finish academia, we're like onto sort of getting our foot on the career ladder. But to actually stop and face yourself takes a lot of courage. Um, and it's not an easy journey. I know. And I feel like partly having the space to do that is probably the best opportunity I'll have. Mm. Yeah. to do that but I appreciate you saying that because that is actually one of the the big concerns I have but I'm also confident it's the right decision to make brilliant well thank you so much for coming on this show and kind of sharing your truths with us thank you so much for having me it's been a pleasure that's it from my STEM guest this week gosh uh, I really feel like I've been transported back to those really beautiful days when I was working so hard in academia and then once I had finished 
I realized that the world was my oyster and I could do whatever I wanted. Um, little did I know that I was right at the beginning of a journey of self-discovery, which I find has been one of the most valuable and significant pursuits um, in my life. I really wish my guest well. Um, I don't think she has any sense of what an amazing person she is and I've been totally inspired today. I hope you have too. Thank you so much for listening and catch you next week on Silence.